cool as the new news We fly like a flag Choke emotions in our chest We dying like our dad Kill each other in the club Dividing down our mass Fascist on the cycle Stuck recycling the past And people ask me why I'm writing this They keep on asking me Why the hell I keep on fighting this As if these demons are creeping and breathing And beating down our heartbeats Seeming to keep our spirits sleeping Like a silent plague seeping through the streets When brothers are caught dreaming So
this closing of this particular play. Absolutely, absolutely. So with this production of Cinderella with the African American Shakespeare Company, the concept comes from, you know, the company. Uh, They wrote an original version of the script, I believe, back in the early 2000s or around there, or or 99 or something around there. Um, And that, you know, consists of Sherry Young and I believe another actress by the name of Bonnie and some other people. The company, I think, put some some ideas to the script. Um, you know, so back then they wrote their own version of the script because Cinderella is, you know, it's a fairy tale, so it is public domain, and um, you know they have the right to write it in their own style. So they figured, you know, they their vision is to envision the classics with color. So you take this classic story of Cinderella, and then you know you put the urban spin, you put the African American experience in it. Um, because, you know, it's an old European tale about, you know, a young girl finding her true love and that kind of thing. So they rewrote the script, and yes, it is a story within a story. You have the grandmother uh, kind of being the bookend to the Cinderella story, telling her grandchildren about it, um, you know, because they're fighting over something. And she says, you know, you remind me of two evil little stepsisters I knew, you know, that I can recall. And she tells them about the stepsisters. One of the funniest things that you see in the play um, is with these two characters. They're very funny, the stepsisters. Their names are Shaniqua and Zonita. You know, in the original Cinderella play, it's like Anastasia and, you know, something else with kind of European roots. But then you give them these very urban names. You know how a lot of people, you know, in a lot of communities of color like to make up their names or have these very, you know, unique Names and so Janique and Zonita are kind of like the first glimpse of what you see um, that's kind of different about this Cinderella um, with the African American Shakespeare Company. So I have to start by saying that they did write the script um, and they've been doing this play um, in production since you know early 2000. And the funny thing is, I started working with the African American Shakespeare Company in 2001. I was in high school. I was at Skyline High School, and uh, my teacher, Jan Hunter, there uh, recommended that I work with Sherry Young in a, in a youth troupe for the summer. So I got to work on that, and we worked all summer, and it was kind of like this cool thing where you could work with um, the school district and get a, a stipend for working with an outside company. And, you know, through the Performing Arts Department of Skyline, I got to work with the African American Shakespeare Company. We did this summer youth troupe, and we did some entirely different play, but I really kind of bonded with the, the uh, administrative staff, including Sherry, then when I was in high school. So she hired me to come and be Prince Charming. Back then in 2001, I was 16, <laughs> and I played against a woman who I think was about 27, 28. So I was a young prince, and she was my young Cinderella. But, you know, Sherry re- really believed in my acting talent then, which was, a re- you know, really a testament to how she reaches back into the community and, you know, brings people on up, building people. Um, so I did the Prince Charming then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then again, I did the Prince Charming in 2006 under director Latanya Watts, who uh, directed the play then. And she wanted to make it a musical, and she knew that I sang. So as soon as she started casting, she called me and asked me to come down and audition for the part, and I did the part again in 2006. Now, uh, this year, I was talking to one of the dancers who danced in the production in 06, and she said, you know, why don't you try to direct Cinderella? You know, you've got your degree, you're working on some different things in your career, and just go for it. So I decided to do that. 
Um, and so, you know, what we're doing this year in 08 is really using that foundation with the African American Shakespeare Company's version of Cinderella. Um, and what I did to kind of change it around was to add, you know, some contemporary music. I wanted to use uh, popular music um, to describe the characters' uh, experiences. And uh, we, we did a couple of things. We changed the names of the grandchildren that the grandmother is talking to. We named them Shayla and Patrice. Uh, for the last decade, you know, with the play, the little girls have never had a name. They've just been grandchild number one and grandchild number two. <laughs> Went ahead and, and gave them names because I, I thought that that would be, you know, help them personalize the part for them. Um, and actually we used six little young ladies from the Bay Area, you know, some coming from as far as Vallejo to join the cast. Um, so every day, you know, they drove out to San Francisco to rehearse their lines, and we really put them to work. They had to rehearse it together. They, re they read with the grandmother every day before the, theme, before the show to really, you know, tap back into their characters because they're, they're budding actresses, and, um, you know, they could use the constant work. So, you know, we're really building little actors ourselves um, even to this day in the company. So, yeah, we've got Shayla and Patrice as the daughters. Uh, that was one thing I changed with it. And I also changed a couple of the, the words and, and some uh, some scenes and how they started and ended. Um, I wanted to give the stepsisters a song. So once they're getting ready, um, I had them have this little scene about how they're going to get the prince, you know, because, of course, they're competing with every eligible maiden in the town. Um, just like, you know, we still have, you know, sisters running around saying there's not enough good brothers. <laughs> and this is kind of the thing. You know, the prince is like the head honcho. He's fly. He looks good. He's got a job. You know, he's set. And girls are, like, all fawning over him. They're trying to get with him. So the stepsisters really represent that kind of a struggle to get, you know, the man. Um, so you'll, you, you'll recall that we used a Beyonce song. We used Get Me Bodied, um, which is from her, her B-Day album, and we just put different lyrics to it. We just used her music, and we, we called it Get Me Married <laughs> because <laughs> Shaniqua and Zonita are trying to get married. So they're fighting in the song, and they're, like, dancing, and at the end, you know, they kind of throw Beyonce's new line in there. If he likes it, then he's going to put a ring on it. You know, like, <laughs> by the time the night is over, I'm going to be married and kind of shows their, you know, their struggle to get uh, to, to land the prince. And so that's the kind of thing I did. I used popular music and I rewrote the words to, you know, to kind of thread through the stories of these people. Um, another song we used was My Sharia Moore. Mm -hmm. And that, that song represented, you know, how the prince uh, longs to get out of his, you know, the confines of his castle. Because, you know, although the life is very privileged, it's also a life that is very strict and, you know, doesn't leave him to have much of a personality and, and to build many friendships and relationships. So when he meets someone who's sincere, he can tell because, you know, they don't lie to him. Um, one of the cool things about this Cinderella is uh, the prince plays a game. You know, in most Cinderellas, the prince doesn't have much of a of a uh, role. You know, in the Disney one, he, he really doesn't barely speak. But in this one, he really is a main character, and he is also longing for someone uh, similar to Cinderella. So it's about her, but it's also about, you know, his his contrasting role and, and their relationship as they build that, you know, rather than him being this 
mystical, you know, figure who's got everything. Uh, in this Cinderella, they really highlighted how the prince is longing as well for for someone and for something strong, something he can believe in, someone that he can fall in love with. And you'll see that in our script that um, even the grandmother says, you know, the prince is looking for someone who loves him for more than just the fancy title, the money, you know. So, you know, he's looking for someone just like Cinderella is. And she may not have all the money like he does, but he doesn't have the love that she has in her own heart because, you know, Cinderella can really remember the beauty of the relationship she had with her father um, before he passed. So there's a lot of, you know, things going on in these characters. And um, that's what I really wanted to highlight with, with, um, with, our, with our version of Cinderella this year, to really put some fun music to it, to get a couple of company numbers. They never had a big, you know, company singing uh, piece. And, you know, working in musical theater, you know that when you go into a musical, you're going to have some big company numbers like Hairspray and Grease and, you know, the Phantom of the Opera and, you know, Wicked. You're just going to have, and Rent, like, you're just going to have these huge numbers that everyone's going to be singing once they leave the theater. You're going to see dancing. You're going to see the lights flashing. So I wanted to give some of that grandeur uh, in our version of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I would, How- I would, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about, you know, with these grand, um, these grand numbers to talk about the choreography because that was another part that I didn't remember in such a big way. I remember the choreography in the ball, but I didn't remember choreography that was connected to, you know, the story like this, you know, the choreography that accompanies, you know, quite a few of these these particular uh, songs, you know, like, for instance, with the prince's three questions and when he asked the question, about how do you like my dancing, mm-hmm. and and you know people you know the women want to say what they think he wants them to say, so it's like okay, well you're fine, even though he's dancing, he's not dancing to the music that they're listening to. I mean, he might be fine, but that's not the melody, that's not the rhythm, right. and and so then you break into well he breaks into you know this this other piece, and I can't remember the name of the artist. Oh, I can tell you for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have to start by, by giving a yeah. shout-out to okay. Ashley Ania of oh, the East Bay Dance Company. She um, has she and her mother run a studio in San Ramon, mm-hmm. and this is the young lady who um, kind of, you know, encouraged me to go out for this, um, oh, for this okay. directorial role myself mm-hmm. um, because we, like I said, we worked together in the 06 production of Cinderella mm-hmm. at, at ZM as well with the African-American Shakespeare Company. And she was our choreographer for the show. She, um, you know, I wrote the lyrics to the songs, and um, she picked the waltz song. And um, I wanted to do um, a contemporary dance number as well, so we did Crank That Soldier Boy. Uh, yes. Soldier Boy. Yeah, so he's, he's kind of like a MySpace uh, hero. He came out, you know, from there, and he's, he's very popular. That song kind of put him on the map. So we used his um, rap song, you know, you. Um, and, you know, every time it comes on, everybody's like, oh, you know, can't, I can't believe this is in the play, you know. Right, it's so, like, I couldn't either. Wow. I told my daughter, I said, Tessine, that's my daughter's name, my younger daughter. I said, he did that song. You know the one? And she said, you mean Soulja Boy, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
because it's just a great dance number, and you know the objective in that scene is really that he is dancing awkwardly. He's he's not dancing like he would at the ball, and you know with his kind of upbringing, he should be proper. You know with the the strings and violins in the background, and be listening to you know classical music, sophisticated music, and he wants to see what girls are going to say if he breaks out with a little hip hop. So he you know he breaks it out. <laughs> And, um, you know, the girl merely says, oh, no, you know, you're inventing a, a new dance that will soon become the rage of the court. And she's just excited that he's dancing with her. So she'll tell him anything. He's dancing the soldier boy at a big formal ball. And she's like, isn't that nice? And he's like, look, you know, I'm dancing the freaking soldier boy. Is there anything that I could do that's like a little off color? And they're like, no, you're perfect. So, you know, it really describes kind of what's going on in his mind, how he's trying to find someone who's honest to him. But yeah, Ashley and Ia definitely choreographed um, three of our large numbers, one being um, The Prince is Giving of All. We used uh, Sam Cooke's Twisting the Night Away. Um, And I'm going to talk about the music in a second as well. And then we used Crank Crank That by Soldier Boy. Um, And then we used uh, A Vienna Waltz with Strings. uh, And the, the dancers really, you know, uh, captivated that with their moves, um, and and a lo- another thing, a, a lot of the people in this play are not um, are not professional dancers at all. Um, they're just, you know, we wanted to build triple threats, so we used them as actors, singers, and dancers. And you know, I have to say, I'm very very proud of what we've accomplished um, in just a short period of time since October mm-hmm. when we began, because a lot of these people, you know. A lot of the people were not dancers, and it was very difficult to get them, you know, on the rhythms of the waltz and the one, two, three, one, two. I mean, it was really tough, but um, they really stuck with it. They really, really did, and I'm just so proud of of the cast. Um, And so with some of the music, you know, I wanted to use some new things, some old things, um, you know, like Crank the Soldier Boy is obviously new, and uh, Twisting the Night Away is Sam Cooke. It's just it's just a really catchy song. It's really great R&B from the 50s, 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I feel like although this, this, this show is set in, you know, a renaissance kind of an era, um, you know, you remember Shaniqua and Zonita are very modern. I mean, they say things you, you'd hear on the street right now, like, mm-hmm. what's up, bruh? You know, and they kind of have this 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 attitude. You know, this kind of an angst, this aggressive, you know, city kind of slicker attitude. And I really wanted to to highlight that because, you know, I feel like although you know time has gone by and you know humankind has changed and civilization is different, there's still underlying personality types. You know, because I'm sure back in the Renaissance days there was this uh, evil stepmother who thought, you know, she's 40 and she's trying to wear a miniskirt, you know, trying to be cute in the town square, <laughs> going to pick up apples in a miniskirt, you know, from the from the town square. And she's got the two little ladies who she thinks are just little beautiful, you know, angels. And they're, like, stealing things and cussing out old men and fighting and, you know, stepping on each other's feet and yelling in the middle of, the, of a party. You know, these kind of character traits, um, I think, you know, could be true in any era. And then you've got the beautiful, humble ingenue who, you know, is, is, is meek and is sincere and is, is slightly awkward because she's trying to figure out life and trying to come into her own womanhood. And, you know, I really wanted to highlight that although, um, you know, they are acting very modern, you know, those that character type 
could very much transcend time for me and even the music, you know, especially as people of color, I feel like uh, even though it's just very modern music, it could be, you know, it still taps into the human spirit. When you hear Prank That Soldier Boy, you want to dance. When you hear, you know, My Sharia Moore, you think it's very romantic. And I think that those, those these songs are really timeless songs and you, you can really transcend, you know, those barriers through time. And I kind of wanted to bend that and, and be kind of whimsical in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering, did you have any 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 role in selecting the cast or did someone else select the cast? Because I know, like, in film, someone else is the casting person. Someone interviews people and then they get, I guess they get, get the... Uh, the the people to a certain point, and then they bring in the director, and then you meet them. And I was wondering, were you there when the cast was selected, and so did you have and think, oh, this person would be really good at this, or that person would be really good at that? And did you, or did you know any of this, these cast members from when you were actually in the cast? Mm-hmm. Uh, the two so, uh, Yeah, um, I, I approached Sherry about this and about. Um, maybe late August, early September. Mm-hmm. And she gave me the go-ahead, and, um, I, I, you know, I went ahead and cast the entire cast. Um, okay. I, I, I um, worked with Ashley um, to get a bunch of people together, and I worked with um, a young man named Trevor Maupin. He, was, he worked on The Wiz with me this uh, summer, and he also helped to cast. He was going to be our assistant director for the show, but... He unfortunately had a bunch of um, you know work obligations. He couldn't participate to the end, but he did have a lot of input in the script and in um, choosing the cast with Ashley and I. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sat down and had casting calls throughout the month of September. Um, I think we had one every weekend. So we saw a lot of people. Um, oh my God! I put an ad on Craigslist, mm-hmm. and um, Sherry Young put out a big blurb to all of the actors and actresses she's ever worked with. She has all their emails in this big. Um, directory. So she sent out a, a message to ev- from here to, I got calls from New York, L.A., um, people from the Bay Area, and and I, of course, you know, I'm just, I'm one of those community people. I always, you know, want to call my friends and people I know are, are good and that kind of thing. So I definitely um, reached out to my own uh, reservoir of acting peers and friends that I've worked with before. Um, I went to Skyline High with Prince Charming, Jeremy Gibson, and uh, with Shaniqua, um, Zakia Owsley, and I worked on The Wiz with Janae Bird, the Zonita. I went to San Francisco State University with Ashana McClay Andrews, who's one of the dancers. Um, and I, it turns out I went to school with Tossie, who's a stepmother. I actually didn't know her in school, but we graduated this May together. Oh, she, yeah, she's um, she graduated from San Francisco State as well, Tossie Long, and she's our stepmother. So, you know, it is a very small world in the Bay Area. Um, and so I ran into a lot of people I had seen and and hadn't worked with sometimes, but, had you know, some people that I did remember. And so, yeah, we had the Craigslist ad out. I put a, a text out to all my friends, you know, that kind of thing. Um, similar to, you know, Obama ran his campaign texting people and that kind of thing. So we kind of did the same thing. We just used technology, and I sent out, you know, I had people send out a MySpace to tell everybody, that kind of thing. Just got the word out. And we saw a lot of people, um, uh, a lot of friends of mine, you know, that I wanted to use. You know, we we had to sift through because we wanted to get the perfect cast, you know, to represent exactly who, um, you know, we wanted to have 
as as one ensemble, and we couldn't have anyone, you know, you know, off center or, or, or too talented, and someone, you know, too weak. So we had to make those sacrifices. And um, you know, like I said, it's my directorial debut, but definitely had my hand in a lot of different things in this run. Um, you know, especially considering the resources and the things African American Shakespeare Company usually does, I had to kind of fit, you know, my um, my time management and my uh, style and my own ideas into that frame, and also you know work through that and kind of build from there. So yeah, I definitely cast the cast, um, a great cast. Um, you know, another thing I want to say about the cast, um, beyond them just being very exceptional and me being being very proud of them is that um, you'll notice that a lot of the, the cast members are in their 20s um, or, you know, you have the young children and then our grandmothers probably, you know, our um, not-as-young cast member. Um, she is, you know, obviously of age to have grandchildren and the stepmother is of age to have children. Yeah, Maybe not 22-year-old children, but these, you know, teenage-year-old children. Um, but, you know, this is a story about a young girl. It's a story about a young woman who's, slightly awkward but very sincere, who's trying to find her place in the world, who, um, you know, has this kind of spiritual muse who could, you know, I figured that this muse was someone who she could relate to, who kind of had been there and done that, but also, you know, could look her in the eye and say, girl, you know, you got to get yourself together, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So even the fairy godmother is rather young. Um, you know, in, in, in fairy godmother land, she's probably, I don't know, a million years old, but in our play, I wanted her to really to relate to Cinderella. So our fairy godmother is 20. Wow. Our Cinderella is 24. Prince Charming <laughs> is 22. Um, our, you know, our wicked stepsisters are both 20 and 17. Janae, I know you'd probably be shocked. Janae is only 17. She's still in high school. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, Vince and Andrew, who are the Page and Duke, they're both in their 20s. And they're old buddies from St. Mary's. Uh, Ashley got in contact with them to get them on board. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of younger people in this play, but I really, you know, um, I don't want anyone to be thrown off by that because this story is about a young lady and it's about a young prince and it's about the people who are in their direct lives. You never see uh, the prince's father who may or may not be 50 or 60. You never see uh, Cinderella's father for very long. Um, so these people are very young and, they're, you know, they're going through these kind of changes altogether. And you really, you really begin to see their world, and I think you know that's that's really that's really why the cast is is more young and and not you know forty and thirty and a lot of that. Um, but you know, you know, considering their age and some of them have very limited um, acting and, and singing experience, but they really, really have pulled off a great show. Like you said, you really enjoyed it, so right. pretty proud of the young cast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you thought I was a. That was a great call. I loved it so much. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to tell you that. Um, who's paying you to uh, give me these kudos? Who's giving you the money? Right. Well, I want to um, let our audience know that we're speaking to Jonathan Smothers, um, director of the African American Shakespeare Company's Cinderella, which continues through the 28th, uh, being performed this weekend, the 27th and 28th, Saturday at 3 p.m., and 8 p.m. and Sunday at 3 p.m. at ZM Theater, 221 4th Street at Howard in San Francisco. And for tickets and information, you can call 800-838-3006, or you can go to brownpapertickets.com. 
And the website for African American Shakespeare Company is African Hyphen American Shakes S H A K E S dot org. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, um, for being on the show this morning and you know, I hope to see, you know, many more of your uh direction uh, you know, with regards to theater productions here in the San Francisco Bay Area and elsewhere because this is a wonderful uh, debut, and I just love that line from the play. Remember, a true prince will recognize your value. Yeah. That's a wonderful, wonderful um, lesson to be learned from this particular production, Cinderella. And perhaps that's why, you know, we love it so much, and we're so happy that African American Shakespeare has been bringing it back over and over for what almost ten years now, right? Yeah, yeah, a long time. Yeah. Okay, well, you have a great rest of the day, and uh, again, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you, and happy holidays to you and for the listeners. Thanks right. for tuning in. Okay, you take care. You too. Okay, peace and blessings. Uh, let's see, trying to click on Renoko Rashidi. Oh, there you are. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, sister. How are you? I'm well. We've been joined by... Um, our wonderful scholar, Renoko Rashidi, um, historian, writer, <laughs> public lecturer with pronounced interest in the African <laughs> Foundations of Humanity and Civilizations and the present and current conditions of black people throughout the global African community. He is particularly drawn to African presidents in India, Australia, and the islands of the Pacific. And um, you can find him on, on the web uh, and read a whole lot more about him. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to get a short bio, but just to remind the listeners, I'm taking a group to Mexico in May, and uh, I encourage you to come along. Uh, you can email me at renoko, R-U-N-O-K-O, at yahoo.com, or call me at 210-232-7272. I'm sorry I didn't hear the whole um, program. I just picked up the last of it, and it sounded very interesting what the brother is doing. Yeah. And African Shakespearean, you know, it makes me think of black people in the history of England. You know, Shakespeare fell in love with a black woman. Really? And in some of his plays, yeah, Lucy Negro uh-huh. was her name, apparently. And um, apparently at least one or two of his characters he based on her. Or <clears throat> I think he did, uh, wrote some poetry to her. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have figures like Othello. And I think there's an African figure in the uh, play Titus Andronicus. Right. And then when you think of Shakespearean actors, maybe the greatest of them all is a black man named Ira Aldridge, right. who was born in the United States in the 19th century and who went to Europe <clears throat> because, of course, he really couldn't practice his craft to any significant extent in the U.S. at that time. But in places like Poland and Russia, I think Sweden, uh, he became a sensation. He was even um, made a member of the nobility. So... Shakespeare. Anytime, anytime you talk about anything, you can find an African presence. I don't care what it is. If you wanted to talk about the African origins of ballet or flamenco, belly dancing, anything culturally, you can find something African in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess I kind of went off there. But, no, uh, that's it, really it, great. It shows yeah, you have a great. It shows you have a great show, <laughs> and it's thought provoking. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um... You know, Titus and Andronicus, I just love the, the, the role of the character, and I'll get the name a little later on, who plays, uh, who is the, because um, there aren't that many black characters in Shakespeare's canon. 
<laughs> but he is he is one of them. And what's really lovely about that particular character is his tenderness toward his baby. He has a son, and and these you know Titus and Adronicus, That's a really bloody play. Uh, you oh see, my God. you're giving me another education. I never read it. I just knew there was an African character in that play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and oh man, this it's sort of. It's it's a family that's at war with itself, and 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 the community outside is coming into it, and they're just killing each other like crazy, and and there's the, the brother in the play, you know, he's he's a warrior, and and you think warriors they're hard and there's no softness, and then when it comes to the baby, the baby, he you know they 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 hold they so like the baby is like the bargaining ticket. It's like, okay, we're going to kill the baby if we don't get you. So it's like, okay, well, you can have well, me, but don't hurt the baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, so, I, I think of myself as a warrior scholar. And certainly there's softness and gentility in me, so you see. <laughs> yeah. We should do a program at some point in time on the African presence in Europe. There's a lot of interesting things I bet a lot of people don't know. One last point, mm-hmm. since we're... <laughs> You said we would just kind of go for it today. Um, I just posted an email. You know, I have these two e-groups, Global African Presence and Travel with Renoco. And I'm trying to – I know a lot of people are on another planet this time of year. Uh, I'm not. So I've been sending out things because I'm addicted to the Internet, sending out things that I hope are relevant to this time of year. And one of the things I just posted was an article about a figure in the Dutch world called Swart Pete. And Swart Pete was a Moorish orphan boy. Of course, the Moors were a dominant force in Europe, black people, for a very long time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Swart Pete, according to the story, was a Moorish orphan boy who was adopted by Santa Claus and made to help Santa Claus stuff the Christmas stockings. And he would be the one, who I think, who would instill fear in the children if they had been bad. This tradition still goes on in the Netherlands today. And it's taken on real, real, real racial, uh, racist dimensions. So that, for example, if you're in a public school and there's a black child in the school, um, that child would automatically be selected to play Swart Pete. And so a lot of Africans in uh, the Netherlands, mostly from Suriname, really don't like that. It reminds me of what happened a few weeks ago in the school in New York City where the two black girls were used to portray captive Africans, enslaved Africans on a a ship depicting the transatlantic uh, passage, I guess that's what it's called, and that created a big outroar, I mean um, uproar and outrage. The other thing I was going to mention, since the brother mentioned his birthday, and since it's that time of year, and I think this is what you wanted to talk about, are some of the African historians who were born around this time. Yesterday was the birthday of the great Dr. Chancellor James Williams, who wrote this magnificent book, Destruction of Black Civilization. And within this 10-year, I mean 10-day time frame, towards the latter part of the month in particular, I know there must be others, but on December 19th is the birthday or Earth Day, if you will, of Dr. Shekhan Tejob from Senegal, who some people regard as our perhaps our finest African scholar. And then on the 31st, <coughs> excuse me, mm-hmm. on the 31st of December, it's the birthday of a brother who's still, you know, alive and, and hanging in there, and that's uh, Yosef Benyakinen, you know, who's done so much work in regards to ancient Egypt, 
And then on the 1st of January is the birthday of uh, Dr. John Henry Clark. And these are these are some scholars who have had, you know, just tremendous impact, especially within the last 30, 40 years or so. And it's just interesting to me that they're all born within that, that small uh, um, time frame. Yeah, they're all on the uh, cusp of uh, either Sagittarius, Sagittarius Capricorn, which is What's your birthday? Uh, June, June 20th, last right, year, Gemini. Great people born in that. You know, uh, that's the time frame of, um, among other people, uh, I think the Dumas family, oh, and maybe yeah. Pushkin as well. All writers going, the African experience going back to Europe. Mm-hmm. And, and there was um, Alexander Dumas. Pair, that's who they, what they call him, right. who, of course, wrote The Three Musketeers and said, um, one for all and all for one, and he said, your work may be finished, your education is never completed. But he also said, and this is for you, that a man's mind is elevated to the status of the women with whom he associates. Mm-hmm. And this is the author of The Three Musketeers and the Count of Monte Cristo. So we just have a rich, rich, rich history, and a very sensitive history, too. Right, yeah, and also one of the Dumas did uh, Eugene Onegin, which is... Uh, Pushkin did that. Okay, oh, Pushkin did that one, okay. <clears throat> and then, but didn't one of the Dumas, I think Pear, he wrote the the story for the Nutcracker, that Stravinsky... Now, um, that I didn't know. Yeah, which I, so when I tell people when you see the Nutcracker, a black man wrote that play, the story anyway. Isn't okay. that cool? <laughs> yes, but <clears throat> as I say, it's very interesting, and, you know, we have a fascinating story, and... Of course, we're in the midst of making history now with this mm-hmm. Barack Obama, what I'm calling the coronation, coming up next month. <laughs> I think sometimes that even historians, they look back on the past, but they forget <clears throat> or lose sight of the fact that we're making history as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. Oh, I remember the name of that character in Titus and Andronicus. His name is Aaron. Aaron the right. Moor. Well, again, you could go from all over Europe. Um, there's this brother, um, you know, there, were, there was at least one African at King Arthur's Round Table. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, his name is Sir Morian. <clears throat> He's a black knight. He's described as black as pitch, uh, black as tar, black <laughs> as a raven, nothing white about him but his teeth. And he bests in um, Galloway, Galahad and Gawain. He becomes the most notable of all the knights at the Round Table. And he's on a quest. Apparently he's from Palestine originally. And he's looking for his father, who came to that part of the world on the what are called the Crusades. And his father met his mother and impregnated her and then split. And so Sir Morian spends his entire life in search of his father. He wants to find his father, not just to reestablish that connection, but to take him back to his mother's community and explain to the entire community why he abandoned his wife and child. This is deep stuff. And this is a Dutch tradition that was also written in French and translated into English. And he becomes the greatest knight at King Arthur's Round Table. You know, Chancellor Williams was important to me. I mentioned him as the first scholar uh, who was born during this period of time. Because he, he dealt not just with Egypt and what we did back in the day, but also, perhaps as importantly, if not more so, he talked about what African people can do to get it back together again. So he had that kind of vision. But he also talked about 
African people who went all over the world before they were enslaved. And that really knocked me, I mean, for a loop, because I grew up with the belief, going to Cal State Northridge, a very fine school, that the book we studied from was called From Slavery to Freedom, and you would get the impression from the title alone that our history began with enslavement. And so Chancellor Williams wrote about Africans who went all over the world, and he especially interested me in the African presence in Asia, Africans in ancient Iraq, in China, but especially India. And for a long time, the African presence in Asia really became my focus. But more and more, I found, since we were talking about it, the African presence in Europe equally interesting, just different, but interesting. Africans in ancient Rome, Africans in Greek mythology, the Moors, the black Madonna figures, mm-hmm. you know, in Europe that are supposed to be miracle-working uh, figures because, <clears throat> simply because they're painted black. And so you also have, of course, I think we've talked about it before. I don't know if we talked about it on your last show, mm-hmm. but I did this uh, remarkable trip to Papua New Guinea um, right. in October. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother African world. There, Aboriginal Australia, and so now I'm taking the group to Mexico, and for me that'll be another threshold, um, another area uh, in terms of the African presence that I'm going to be able to see firsthand as we look at those Olmec heads and look at Africans among the Maya. So we have the greatest story that's barely been told, and sister, it's just you know a pleasure and an honor to be able to come on your show and and share some of these things with you in the audience. Well, I'm so happy that you're available. You know, you're sending out these emails, and you know, I email you back, and I get another response. I'm like, whoa, you're up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I like what I do, you know, and that makes mm-hmm. a big difference. Oh, you know, certainly. I, I love what I do when I feel like I'm doing something very good at the same time. It's intellectually stimulating. But it can be lonely sometimes, too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, again, your shows um, allow us you know, to reach out and communicate with each other, to reach out and touch, you know, and share. You know, what do we do? You know, this is a time of, I guess, for many people, a time of the year where family is very, very big. But unfortunately, many times we find ourselves in situations where those of us who are pursuing this African thing, or whatever the case may be, something related, we oftentimes, are, we oftentimes find ourselves cut off from our biological families husband, wives, sons, daughters, parents in particular, sometimes don't have an appreciation of the things that we've dedicated our lives to. And so we find ourselves dealing with elements of rejection and alienation. And again, not to flatter you too much, but I do think we have to encourage each other. The program, the show that you have, the the shows that you are involved with, allow us to develop an extended family, an African family of like-minded people. So, you know, it's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> yeah, every time you say that, every time you email me, it's like, oh, my God, this is like Renoko Rashidi. I mean, like this huge scholar that's touched Oh, I'm just a guy who these... loves Africa, likes to read and write, and likes to travel and see the world. And yeah. wish I was someplace far away right now, but this economic pinch is affecting everybody. <laughs> and so weather-wise, too, maybe it's not the best time to travel. But I think about the far corners of the earth mm-hmm. uh, that I like to be in. Next year I've got my tours, but I also have independent travel. I want to go to the Philippines. Mm, that's I, so cool. There's like such <clears> a <throat> large, I mean, there's a recent African presence there. Well, recent and ancient. 
Well, got yeah, black reason, folk. But they, and there's also the ancient, yeah, because you know, the, yeah. after what was it, World War Two, when when those soldiers said, no, we are not going to obey orders, and they and they retreated back into into the country and just got absorbed and decided That's to true. make the Philippines That's their true. home. I thought that was so great that they didn't obey orders. Well, you yeah, have this famous brother named, I think, David Fagan, mm-hmm. who was from the United States. And as you're pointing out, um, a lot of people don't know about U.S. involvement in the Philippines. But about the beginning of the 20th century, the U.S. was in the Philippines to suppress an uprising of the people, mm-hmm. kind of like the Vietnamese War, or what the Vietnamese called the American War. And African Americans were in the U.S. Army at that time, and one of them is David Fagan. And rather than fight the Filipino, he actually went over to the Filipinos and became a, a, a renowned guerrilla fighter. And the local people started to call him General Fagan. So that's interesting. And then, of course, you have black people who have been in the Philippines for so long that they have no sense, based on what my students have told me who have been over there and studied with them, don't have a sense that they are from Africa. They are black people. Everybody recognizes that. In fact, the Spanish call them Negritos, or little Negroes. But they don't have a sense. I mean, their history is they've been in the Philippines for so long that apparently they don't recognize their own sense of African identity. And that's another issue that I find myself examining as I go along, too, and that is what makes us African. Are you African simply because we say that you're African or what? Who can be an African? Are all black people Africans? Are all Africans black people? And in terms of this African experience in Asia, like the Philippines, maybe India is very similar to that. Southeast Asia with the Khmer's and what have you, the question of African identity is uh, becomes a very, very interesting one. Yeah, so, so what do you do? For me, I always just let people name themselves whatever they are, and and then we connect where we agree. You know, a lot of times people don't say they're African, but they say they're black people. So it's like, okay, well, that I I could go with that. Well, I fought that for a long time. One of the other scholars, um, Shekhan Tejope, born December 29th, in his first big book, I think, to have an impact in the United States, which came to be called African Origin and Civilization's Myth of Reality, pointed out, I think I can almost quote him verbatim, that there are two distinct, I think he uses the word, black races, and he says, and this book was originally, most of it was originally written in the 1950s, so the terminology would be different. But that there are two distinct black races. One um, with black skin and tightly curled hair, woolly hair, nappy hair, happy to be nappy hair. And then you have another group with straight to wavy hair. And he specifically mentions uh, uh, the Nubians, but you also have black people in Asia like that too. And those are the Dravidians. So, you know, I grew up with the attitude, um, I want all black people to recognize their African identity. I believe, along with many others, that Pan-Africanism is ultimately the key. And, you know, that has the basis of that is Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. Africa is the key. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of my early writing career as a young historian, you know, I called everybody, every black person African. And then Jacob Carruthers once told me, he said, uh, he's an ancestor now, he says, Renoko, you basically, you're doing good work, but what you should do instead of telling everybody they're African is you should go and sit and talk to them and listen to them. 
and see what they call themselves and how they see themselves. And it's kind of a, a humbling experience. I think that if you force your viewpoint on other people, irregardless of how they see themselves, then in a sense you become the oppressor. I think that is what has happened to us as a people, that we have had a historical and anthropological vision thrust upon us, whether it's accurate or not. And I guess that we cannot, we cannot afford to do the same thing to other people, that we really do need a global dialogue of peoples, particularly within the black family, and then we can go from there. Yeah, I was just thinking when you said I had a couple of thoughts, thinking about sort of the idea of being Pan-African or the Pan-African vision is something, for me, it seems to resonate more for those of us that, or you know, are in in the diaspora, not because we chose to be in the diaspora, was but because we were brought here <clears throat> against our will, you know, in that in that European slave trade. So the idea of linking or connecting back with our people, it seems to be more of a driving force than necessarily those people that never left home, so to speak, or are happy wherever they are. That's one thing. And then the second thing I thought about when you mentioned. The you know the whole thing around you know letting folks name themselves was that you know in regards to our consciousness or our, our desire to not be like the people that enslaved us or have that kind of mentality we have to fight against that and so I think about the Back to Africa movement mm-hmm. right after enslavement ended, you know, when we went back to Africa and, and you know, acted like Liberia didn't have people in it already and and became the new overseers and masters. Yeah, and, and then yeah. you see what happened with that over the centuries to, you know, recently, you know, now there is a ceasefire and there's a first, you know, woman president in all of Africa. But just that whole thing around, you know, white supremacy with a black face, <laughs> You know, and I'm wondering, for instance, how we need to sort of guard against that, no matter how good our intentions are, of being having a supremacist kind of attitude around, I know what's best. Well, you make some excellent points. Um, I think for me, it's a matter of just asking questions mm-hmm. and listening and, you know, developing a level of um, humility. I think that because we live in such a powerful country, that there's a tendency towards uh, a sense of superiority, and that even though we see ourselves as African, many of us, America is deeply ingrained in us. And sometimes I find that it comes out in situations and places where you really don't anticipate it, that you have to be in an environment that's almost like having a mirror thrust in front of you. And you look at yourself, calling yourself an African, but you realize how deeply ingrained the American experience is, and sometimes it's not a pleasant experience. um, Travel is a real education, and um, so you've got to be very, very humble and listen, you know, and ask a lot of questions. Um, Prepare to be flexible. Keep an open mind. For example, sisters and brothers, you know, I love to talk about black people in India, and you have this group there called the Tamils, and they live in southeast India. And a few years ago, I was honored by a Tamil group in the United States who asked me to come and uh, talk about the common origins of the Tamils and Africans. And it was an instruction for me, too, because I found out 
that the Tamils, who are black people, some of them <clears throat> among the blackest human beings you're ever going to find, they would say, we are not Africans. We don't come from Africa. Or they won't say we're not Africans, but they would certainly say we don't come from Africa. They believe that Africans and Tamils come from the same place, and that's a continent that is now underneath the sea, and that from this continent that connected um, East Africa and Southern Asia, these different groups of black people walk back and forth. Aboriginal Australians feel very similar to that. You know, they believe, almost everyone I've ever talked to, and that's quite a bit, they believe that they've always been in Australia. They don't give a hoot about DNA studies, <laughs> archaeology. They don't mean nothing to them. And if you say they're African and that they came from Africa, no matter how ardent you are about that, you really run the risk, run the risk of offending them. But at the same time, there was a Garvey movement in Australia. There was a Black Panther Party established in Australia. They had sit-ins. They had freedom rides. And their, st their struggle is very, very similar to ours. So I just think this is a wonderful time to be alive and to be spreading the gospel of Africa and black redemption. And for me, life is so good and that I've been able to go to all these places, and I still have a lot of juice in the tank, a lot of places I want to see and people I want to talk to about this common heritage that we have, because ultimately <clears throat> I think that that becomes the foundation for our liberation. Well, let our audience know that we're speaking to uh, Dr. Renoka Rashidi, noted African <coughs> scholar. And tell us again when your uh, tour is and, and your contact information. Well, the first tour for 2009, this is a noted African scholar, by the way, with a, um, coming down with a bad cold. <laughs> um, my next tour is to Mexico, the African presence in Mexico. That's the beginning of May. And then at the end of May, we look at the African experience in Saharan Morocco. That'll be fascinating. Oh, nice. And then a couple trips to Egypt, a trip to West Africa, and then a tour to Bolivia and Peru, God willing, next uh, October. People can always reach out to me at area code 210-232-7272. That's 210-232-7272. Or you can email me, which is always a good thing, uh, at Renoco. R-U-N-O-K-O at yahoo.com. Okay, cool. And you know, I don't remember what Renoko means. Could you tell us? Uh, oh, Renoko Renoko's <clears throat> an embarrassing name. Oh. My, my whole African name is Renoko. <laughs> You're laughing. Renoko Rashidi Okelo. Renoko means handsome. It's Shona. Oh. I didn't give myself that name, by the way. <laughs> and Shona are people in Zimbabwe, big time in the news. Rashidi is Kiswahili. Swahili, Kiswahili is a controversial language. It has elements of uh, indigenous African languages and Arabic. Swahili means counselor. It's from Tanzania. And the last name I was given just two years ago, Okelo, and that means he who gives or he who brings. And that's a longer name from northern Uganda. I went there. I brought some school supplies to this war zone. And the people were so ecstatic that they gave me that name. So Renoko Rashidi Okelo is the handsome teacher who brings. And I do try to, I don't know about the handsome part. I'm not even quite sure about the teacher part. But I do try to bring. When I take groups, I insist that we bring books and school supplies. that we don't see ourselves as tourists, but we see ourselves as family come to pay a visit. Mm, yeah, that's lovely. Well, we are finish with the uh, the live um, 
broadcast, but we can continue talking for a few more minutes, um, maybe 15, because I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit more, if you have a minute. <laughs> sure, I do. Let me clear my throat. Okay, sure. <clears throat> I'm do so sorry. That only happens on radio shows. Do you have any water? Yeah, I have some. Now, what's your okay. question? Mm-hmm. Uh, my question is, this weekend, I didn't realize that uh, Chick Anta Diop's birthday is the 29th. Yep. Which I believe is, um, uh, that's Monday, this coming Monday. And also, according to your email, I thought uh, Chancellor Williams' birthday was the 22nd, which was Monday, not the 23rd. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm thinking, this. yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Okay. okay I just got my days mixed up. Okay, just check. So it is the 22nd. <clears throat> and so anyway, a week later, I shake onto the um birthday. And, and to here in the San Francisco Bay Area, in Oakland, we're going to be having the first annual Shake Onto Diop Golden Spirit Awards Charity Gala. Oh, great. And, yeah, yeah. And you probably know the uh, the brother who is one of the um, uh, one of the presenters. He's actually the... Uh, what do you call it? He is the trans. He's one of the translators for um, for our brother's books, and I'm looking for the information. I can tell you his name unless you know it. Uh, I'm trying to think, where is it? Um, it's not Manu. No, okay. no, it's not. No, it's not Manu. Um, his last name is. Well, one of his name is. I think it's Obama Yalingi. Provost or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, Layla Wabogo. <clears throat> No, no, I know nope. him. No, that's not his name either. Uh, I'll have to look for it. And Which book it. did he translate? Um, he said, I thought he had translated more than one book because, uh, let me see. There's a brother named Yalingi, and he translated Sheikh Anta Job's book, his last book, Civilization or Barbarism. Perhaps this person has translated some of the work and and maybe um, it hasn't been published or something. I'm not oh, sure. His name is Daryl Obama Pro- Pro- Provost. Do you know? Yeah, him? yeah, but okay. his work hasn't been published in oh. a major form. Okay. I met Daryl Provost. Wow, over tw- almost 30 years ago, we participated really? in a conference that was very controversial. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Shake On to Joe, yeah. called the Now Valley Conference, and uh, it was to be Shake On to Joe's first visit to the United States. But it turned out to be so controversial, and a better word is perhaps contentious, that he didn't um, actually come to the United States. I think that this was 1980, I believe it was 1982, 1983. Mm-hmm. And then um, a brother named Charles Finch, brilliant scholar, was able to get almost single-handedly uh, Job to the United States uh, in 1986. And I've, you know... I was supposed to speak. We were shaking Job and I were supposed to do a program together at San Francisco State on that first visit in 1982. I still have the poster where you know we were supposed to appear together. That would have been a, tremendous for me at least. And um, so Finch didn't tell anybody until right before Job came in 90, in 86. And we were good friends at that time. And he called me I think a day or two before told me that this great scholar from Senegal was coming. And I, you know, didn't have much money at the time. I was really a starving scholar back then. <laughs> and uh, so Finn said, don't worry about it. We're going to bring him back in another year or so. We're going to give him a national tour. And, of course, he died just a few months after that. Oh. So, Prevost and I have a relationship that revolves around Sheikh Antichel in many ways. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I was wondering, since um, we're going to be speaking to 
to Prevost, and and also another one of the persons who is putting on the gala, uh, Eddie Hart. On Friday, I was wondering if you could give us like a little preview and and tell us a little about uh, Shake On to Diop before. I'd be happy to. Okay. I think that his first of all, his name is Shake, but not with an S, with a C, C H E I K H. Anta, I'm not sure what that means. A N T A. And Jop, I think most people pronounce it Diop. It's spelled D-I-O-P. It's a very, very common name in Senegal, like Smith or Brown or Jones. So uh, Jope is from Senegal, West Africa, a former French colony, and he is from a community of people called the Wolof, W-A-L-A-F, very, very dark-skinned people, black, black people generally. He was a Muslim. He had his early years in Senegal, and when he was, I guess it must have been in his early 20s, I would imagine, maybe even late teens, he moved to France, and he studied at the Sorbonne. This is right after World War II in the European world in 1948. A lot of Africans were coming from um, the colonies, at least Senegal in particular, going to France at that time. Many of them married French women. Sheikh Antoine married a a French woman, a French citizen. He went to the Sorbonne. I believe he studied physics, but his interest seemed to be history and anthropology. So in 1954, I think it was, he presented for his uh, doctoral uh, dissertation a work that came to be published called Negro Nations and Culture. It was published in 1955, ultimately, by the first black publishing house and bookstore in Paris, and that's Presence Africaine. That thesis or that dissertation was denied. He spent most of his time talking about Egypt, and those white professors at the Sorbonne, his advisors, weren't going to have that. And so uh, he wrote, he did another one two or three years later, and that one was called Culture Unity of Negro Africa. And of course, that uh, it has a slightly different French title. And this, in some ways, was perhaps his most important work, in some ways, because he talked about the cultural links that bind us as a people, as black people. He talked about the cultural links that bind Europeans and a zone of confluence in between those two cultures that produced the, what has been called the Semitic world. And then he finally got his PhD in 1960 with a book called um, Pre-Colonial Black Africa. All of these books have been published in English. And that book, he just decided that he wasn't going to deal with Egypt. He looked at so-called black Africa. So Sheikh Antijope is remarkable. His, his, I guess his greatest achievement is showing beyond any reasonable doubt the African origins of Egyptian civilization. And he uh, tackles every argument. He's so thorough that in 1974, at a UNESCO-sponsored conference or symposium in Cairo, Egypt, what were considered by UNESCO, I suppose, the leading authorities in the world in Egypt were invited to come and participate and talk about exactly who it was that built ancient Egyptian civilization. I suppose they thought there was a need to have a discussion on it. It should have been clear to many of us, but they had this symposium. And the other part was to deal with, I think, the decipherment of the Meroitic script, now, Egypt is not isolated. It's a part of Nile Valley civilization, which is part of the African context. 
and one of the greatest civilizations besides Kemet or Egypt in the history of the Nile Valley is Meroe. And so they were going to talk about the decipherment of that. And among others, Sheikh Anta Job from Senegal and Theophila Benga, is, I guess you could say his oh. principal student from Congo Brazzaville, were at that conference. And they blew these people away. And they pointed out one piece of evidence after the other to show the African origin of civilization. They developed what is called the melanin dosage test. And by this, what you're able to do is um, examine the uh, epidermis of royal Egyptian mummies, this outer layer of the skin, for the melanin content. And they presented that as another form of evidence to show these were black people. There's no question about that. And supposedly one of the scholars became so frustrated with this profound scholarship that Jope and Obega were introducing that supposedly he jumped up and down in frustration and exasperation and said, even if you can prove the ancient Egyptians were black, they were still white. And that is typical of Diop's or Jope's scholarship. Mm -hmm. So he's really a remarkable person and to the extent that ultimately many people chose to call him the pharaoh of Nile Valley studies. Wow. Wow, that is fabulous. Oh. I was just thinking that this um this past month we had the Western um conference of the Association of Classical African uh civilizations. Okay. I think were you were you in Brazil at that time still? I don't remember. No, I was in the United States. I was okay. uh doing a program in Washington D C in Baltimore that weekend. Okay, yeah. But um Professor uh, Theophile Obanga was one of the presenters, and his his major presentation was on this university that he he's establishing in Congo, and he's going to be taking a sabbatical, a leave without pay though, unfortunately, to to establish. Um, I guess he said in order to to build the the university, he's going to have to become more central to the government of of Congo. Because he said then he'll have more power to be able to do, you know, to be able to see his vision through. But he had he had you know architectural designs and drawings and things like that to share with us. And uh, I was like, wow. That sounds wonderful. I hope that means that the um, government of Congo Brazzaville is more progressive um, than it has been in France. I meet a lot of sisters and brothers from Congo. When they talk about Congo, they mean French Congo, Congo Brazzaville, as opposed to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But I think that one of the things Dr. Obenga is bound to do, and I, I think it's a wonderful project, a wonderful program, is to be able to show more links with Egypt and the rest of Africa. I think that historically, at least for the last couple hundred years, Egypt, ancient Egypt has been seen as kind of like an isolated entity, a civilization that just happens to be on African soil and it's not African in nature or character. We know better than that, and he's one of the people who's helped to show that. But even now, on my recent visits to Uganda and Rwanda, two of the most beautiful places in Africa where the ancient Egyptians say they came from, they kind of, sisters and brothers tend to chide me and say, well, Brother Renoko, we're kind of troubled by you, sisters and brothers in the United States. Why do you go to Egypt all the time? Why don't you come here in Central Africa and see where the Egyptians came from? And then you can trace the roots of Nile Valley civilization from its source as we go through the uh, the valley of the Nile and ultimately end up in the Mediterranean area. 
So Omega is one of our most pivotal scholars, and I wish him the best. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, really quickly, uh, I have a couple of questions uh, with regards to some of the terms you use because I don't know how to spell them. And when you were talking about the symposium right. uh, on the Nile Valley uh, civilizations and Kemet, you mentioned Maroy something. Well, some people pronounce it Mero, uh-huh. and other people call it Meroe, Meroway. So let me give you the two spellings. All right. One is spelled M-E-R-O-E, M-E-R-O-E. Okay. And sometimes it's spelled with a W, oh. and that's M-E-R-O-W-E. Okay. And I believe that the ruins are north of the city of Khartoum, and so in order to get there, and I haven't been to northern Sudan, I've just been to the south, but that's another area that I really want to visit. Mm-hmm. And I think that Meru'i, some people think it's older than Kemet, but I think it exists.